listening to a podcast from The National. It's been an exciting week in the UAE corporate scene. We're talking about a potential merger of three Abu Dhabi banks, which will shake things up for the sector and gets us kind of hot under the collar as we head into the final quarter of 2018. Less positive news for the emerging market scene, uh, where Turkey, their currency crisis rolls on. Uh, Their central bank is promising uh, an interest rate hike uh, to help curb that. But investors are very much, we'll see it when we believe it. And also, later in the show, we'll be talking to the energy correspondent of The National, Jennifer Niana, about the oil price's recent rally in the past few weeks, and also why Saudi Aramco's decision to delay its much-vaunted IPO is actually very sensible given the current time. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief, coming to you from the National's newsroom in Abu Dhabi. Joining me now to discuss the top headlines from the business world this week is Chris Nelson, Assistant Business Editor. Chris, of course, uh, as I just mentioned, the big news this week in the UAE is the announcement of merger talks between Abu Dhabi Commercial Bank, Union National Bank, and Al-Hilal, uh, which is an Islamic lender. Now, uh, the market capitalization of ADCB was boosted on Tuesday by about 5 billion dirhams, UNB 1.5 billion dirhams, investors applauding mm-hmm. the possibility of a merger. Um, ADCB is talking separately to UNB and Al-Hilal. UNB uh, itself confirmed that it was in talks with ADCB, but very much the idea is, of a, or the expectation is, mm. of a three-way merger, mm. which would give um, you know their competitors in the UAE and the wider region uh, something to think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the scale of the of the potential new bank, which of course was very early days in terms yeah. of talks, a deal may yeah. not happen, but yeah. people are excited about what this could mean. Yeah, definitely. I think um, if it does come off, uh, it would create the Arabian Gulf's fifth largest banking entity uh, with about $114 billion of combined assets. Um, and it's interesting that it's a merger uh, between two traditionally um, normal banks, as it were, and a specifically Islamic lender. Uh, that that's different, um, and that's that's caught a lot of imagination, I think. Um, I assume there's a regulatory advantage there because uh, you know ADCB uh, has Islamic banking products um, as as most conventional banks yeah. do, uh, but to get an ex- the actual license of an Islamic lender is probably a game changer. Absolutely, and and something I, that that you know their their competitors, the big ones, Emirates, MBD, yeah. FAB, will will really have something to think about. Yeah, definitely. Um, as you say, it is at uh, ADCB itself was was. Uh, you know, uh, at pains to point out that it, they are very preliminary stage talks. Um, but if it does go ahead, um, then uh, EFG Hermes said that because they're effectively owned by the same people, i.e. the government, um, that should ease the negotiation process because there had been, as you said, you know, certain amounts of uh, trepidation about the potential for licensing so, you know, three, two, two, and one very different sort of uh, organisation. But as as um, EFG pointed out, um, there is a there is a uh, an example that it could follow, and that's uh, Dubai's Emirates NBD, uh, which could serve as a, a blueprint for. Well, this is the merger ten years ago between yeah. Emirates Bank and National Bank. Of that's Dubai. right. That's right. Um, which is, of course, ENBD is now a conventional bank and has a fully Islamic subsidiary. Um, so that yeah, Emirates Islamic. 
Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, which actually give, makes it makes it different for them. You know, it gives them a very powerful position. Um, and and so this for the the banking sector has seen quite a bit of change now mm-hmm. um, over the last few years. Uh, of course, they were going to be impacted first um, beyond oil and gas from the the drop in crude prices mm-hmm. after that mad summer peak of yeah. over $110 a barrel. Yeah. So the banks were always going to feel that first, particularly their corporate customers. And they went through a few years of... of uh, it, no one really made losses. Mm. I mean, let's mm. c- let's clarify that. But profits fell mm. and margins were squeezed. Mm. And the bank sector has begun to recover now. So I guess that's why the timing is interesting mm-hmm. because it's from a position of strength, if you like, yeah. not yeah. a position of weakness. Last year, when the FAB merger um, went ahead, uh, there was speculation, at least when it was announced, mm. that there could be ADCB and UMB. You know, Al Hilal was also mm-hmm. mentioned, mm-hmm. and then that went away. Yeah. yeah. But then we had a bit of speculation, didn't we? Uh, sort of twenty four hours before the announcement yeah. of the talks, yeah. and you could see the shares, you know, rising on both, in rose, both, yeah. right? Yeah. But then on the when the actual day when they announced it, there yeah. was there was still more buying. Yeah, absolutely. Of, when it, when it was. Officially announced that they were talking about it. Yeah, so so it's it, I think it's it's created some excitement. Definitely, yeah. Um, something to think about in the, in, in the next few months. Uh, what will happen there? Even if the deal doesn't go ahead, and you know sometimes it's just enough to to have that discussion. Um, but uh, somebody I know well uh, here in the UAE who knows the business world very well, he said in the in the Arab world, you know, we talk about the due diligence process. Once you know a man and woman have seen themselves undressed, they yeah. better get married. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah. it's not like the, the West where you know we'll see mergers typically the plug get pulled a yeah. lot yeah. before yeah. they go ahead. And usually, what they do is in the West they have a big penalty, yeah, yeah. of billions Mm-mm. if the merger Mm-mm. doesn't go ahead. Yeah. Um, but in this case, as you said, with the, with a, that common shareholder mm-hmm. of the Abu Dhabi mm-hmm. government. Everyone's excited. This might actually go through. Yeah, absolutely. They're not going to. I mean, they're not going to find themselves if it doesn't, are they? So, no, um, exactly. But it, it's good. It's a, it's kind of like a, I think a thunder start to the to the t- second half of the year, if you like. To the yeah. Fin- as we yeah. approach the final quarter. Right? I think it is, and I think it's reflective of of how Abu Dhabi has kind of revamped its economy. You know, over the three year oil slump. Um, you know, it's merged state back companies, including two of the sovereign wealth funds, um, and that creates larger, more efficient entities. You know. Um, and of course, in the case of ADCB and the other two, if they do get together, um, it will allow another opportunity for the corporate sector to um, access, uh, you know, another avenue of big ticket loan deals. Um, and of course, gives FAB something to to think about when it's you know offering its own um, deals and, and and such to the corporate. Also, it should be able to. Um, lower the cost of funding and and be able to pass that on uh, as an advantage to the customers. Um, Which would be good, given yeah. that interest rates are expected to rise yeah. and keep rising. So if there yeah. is a, a saving for, for retail customers, that'll be good. Um, it, it's, it's good to see the um, UA corporate landscape in good health. Um, less uh, positive is emerging markets at the moment. Uh, this week, uh, the national we've been covering, as well as the uh, possible merger in the UAE of those banks, uh, to the Turkey currency crisis. Mm which uh, is getting pretty severe at the moment. Mm. Uh, the, the, the lira is down over 40% mm-hmm. year to date against the US dollar. About 43 at the minute. Yeah. Investors have little confidence that the Turks can turn this around. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this week has, has definitely been 
Oh, Interesting, right? If, if I can use a, <laughs> yeah. a euphemism. Bloodbath, I think, is what it is. Possibly, yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> um, the, the, the central bank, interestingly, again, I'll use that word, mm. um, said they might raise rates when they meet uh, next in, week. Next yeah. week, yeah. Which, which is, a, which, does, do you believe them? Do, does anyone believe them? No. No, frankly. Um, and investors don't believe them. Um, it, it would go directly against what President Erdogan has um, more than once described interest rates as evil. So the likelihood that it's going to, given the fact that it, there is also this, you know, suspicion that he has a distinct hand on the tiller of the central bank, um, I don't think anybody believes that's going to happen, which is just going to exacerbate the situation. A, a few weeks ago, we had this interesting uh, Friday afternoon where um, the, the poor, beleaguered Turkish finance minister, who's also President Erdogan's son-in-law, yeah. um, uh, got ready to make his big speech um, that was going to sort of make investors more confident in what mm. was going to happen in Turkey. Um, you know, they had an overheating economy, um, their policies under question, independence of the central bank under question. And so investors have been shunning the lira for some time. Uh, and he he came in with with his big speech, just as he started to speak. Our friend in in, in the White House, Donald Trump, decided to tweet <laughs> that he doubled sanctions on Turkish uh, metal products. Right, um, yeah. and and you saw that if you, anyone was watching the, the the lira dollar chart, in the next fifty minutes, yeah. it just plunged. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and and of course, there's a big political issue there between the U.S. and Turkey yeah. over a jailed uh, American, American pastor, uh, clergyman, yeah. um, and and so people kind of are conflating uh, the politics and and the economics here. Mm. But I think this week is very much about the economics, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And uh, also, contagion uh, of the crisis not only through other emerging market currencies. You know, the rand is uh, on Wednesday afternoon, the rand was up 15.6 to the dollar. Yeah, South Africa's officially uh, in recession now. Yeah, it's yeah. just slipped into recession. That's the lowest The lowest rate it's been in more than two years. The uh, lira was down 43% uh, overall since the start of the year. It's 6.7 to the dollar. And the Indian rupee, rupee hit its lowest since the Asian financial crisis of 1997 this week. So... And, we've, you know, with Argentina as well, um, you know, they, you kind of feel there's something not exactly well in emerging markets in general. Mm. I mean, there's been fears all year about um, the, what, what could possibly happen in terms of China. There's a, there's a lot of debt there, government, yeah. local yeah. government debt in particular. Um, but also emerging market companies have been borrowing heavily in dollars, uh, in other yeah. currencies, yeah. and with interest rates rising and such a strong dollar, it, it puts them in a precarious position. Yeah, so absolutely. there's a lot there's a lot of worry out there, a lot of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of similarities between South Africa and Turkey is that um, the, the political has played a huge part yeah. in it, right? Yeah, massive. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the land grab uh, spectre has raised its face again, um, uh, which is the idea that... Um, the ANC, the ruling party, um, is considering basically taking land owned by white farmers and giving it uh, back to um, to native uh, um, black farmers um, and well, black people in general, really. And that that has also um, impacted the investor confidence uh, in the region. Um, and combined with Turkey's uh, yeah. contagion, it's a perfect storm for Africa and for South Africa and. Of course, plunging into recession for the first time in nine years, it's it's only going to get worse, really. And and this is kind of relevant for us here because we work so hard to get emerging market status for our financial markets. And then an emerging market crisis comes along. Um, So 
we were talking about excitement in terms of the UA corporate scene. Uh, over the summer, we talked at length about the, the government reforms and stimulus that have been put in place here in the UAE. Visa changes that are quite exciting. Yet we're not immune to sort of the wider factors going on um, in terms of investor mm. attitudes to emerging mm. markets. And if yeah. there is a sort of aversion to risk, um, and we've seen it, you know, a lot of flight to the US dollar. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. not necessarily Absolutely. good for our, yeah. for our asset prices mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I want to finish this, this discussion on a more positive note. Mm. Um, tell me what's happening with our favorite innovative billionaire, James Dyson. Well, he's, he surprised us this week um, by announcing that uh, the company, which is uh, based in the northern English city of uh, Sheffield, and he's best known for its vacuum cleaners and hand dryers, is pushing ahead with its £2 billion uh, push to start building its own electric cars. I would never back against James Dyson. No, absolutely anything. not. I no. mean, who thought he could reinvent hand dryers? Yeah. yeah. Who thought Who thought you could reinvent them? Never who mind lies awake would. at night thinking, <laughs> yeah. what I really must do yeah. is reinvent hand dryers? Yeah. Only a man like him. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, his story is legendary for those who, who might not be aware. is he, A man who tinkered away at his vacuum cleaner, frustrated with its lack of efficiency, and came up with their first product. And since then, they've become more than just a one-product yeah. company. Yeah washing machines, yeah. um, hand vacuums, um, fans. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they, they, they came it's up... it's really high-tech stuff. Yeah, well non-blade yeah. fans. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you How know, does and, that work? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, like I mean... magic. Again, <laughs> who lies awake at night thinking <laughs> yeah. about these things? We, thank God for him, yeah. because it wouldn't be yeah. me. Um, and the hand dryers, which I love them, yeah. personally, yeah. Yeah. you know, they, they really they really pack a punch. Yeah. 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 Um, so if he's going to go into the electric car market, the next person to lie awake at night will be Elon Musk. Yes, most you definitely. Know, yes. Know, who we're all feeling very sorry for at the moment. Oh, terribly sorry for yeah, the poor man. He, he's, had yes. a, he's had a rough few months. Yeah, it's terrible for a billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> um, he He's very much, in, you know, anything he does and says at the moment, he's, he's sort of the corporate world's Donald Trump, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, and I don't think he enjoys it particularly, although you could argue that his skin is so thick he just couldn't care less. But uh, I think his skin's a lot thinner than Donald Trump's. Probably, which yeah, is well, I think something. his goes all the way through, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. um, but yeah. good luck to James Dyson yeah, and, on the electric cars. Um, we, we like him here because uh, I think in terms of UK-based billionaires, he pays more tax than the rest of them combined. And another thing about here is, of course, that this year uh, uh, James Dyson launched his James Dyson Awards. They're in 27 countries anyway, and it's designed to, to give budding ent- uh, engineers um, um, to help them facilitate their ambitions um, within various countries. And the, it launched for the uh, in the UAE this year, the, making it the first Arab country selected. So, yeah, we do like it. Chris, thanks very much. Pleasure. As I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, we're getting into oil markets. Uh, the oil price has been rallying over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, Perhaps not surprisingly, given the uh, recent application of new sanctions on Iran by the US and them having to cut back on imports. Uh, Happy to say that in the studio with me is our energy correspondent, Jennifer Niana. Welcome. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about what's been happening the last few weeks in terms of the oil price. The oil markets have seen rallies in both the benchmarks. Uh, Brent has seen uh, an 11% increase since August. It was trading at 79 per barrel on Monday. Uh, WTI, West Texas Intermediate has also been up. Um, and they're likely to remain that I- in that range or perhaps even higher. So analysts are predicting that uh, the price of Brent could reach 95 uh, through winter 
So it's 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 largely been Iran, but there have also been other factors. But we've come to a point where traders are looking at tightening of supplies, and we've, we're seeing refiners from East Asia reducing their supply from Iran, and that has resulted in in high oil prices. So, so Donald Trump's actions uh, to curb uh, the amount of oil that Iran can sell, um, you know, over its nuclear program, uh, has meant that the oil has been been being pulled out of the market, essentially, or, or the customers are saying, we're not buying anymore, and they're having to go elsewhere, and that's driving up the price of oil in general. So there are two things that are taking place. The oil markets anticipated some kind of resistance to the U.S. sanctions. So we've seen the first wave of sanctions in August. The second wave, which will be in November, it's more targeted towards Iran's oil industry and the energy markets and will have wider implications for oil prices. Um so some of the refiners in South Korea, in Japan, they tried getting waivers. I think efforts are still underway to get waivers, but it's it's been unsuccessful so far. We've seen big investments in Iran, like Total's $4.8 billion investment in South Pars being uh, cancelled, for instance. Uh, so the, the companies that, that had applied for waivers are, are you know, considering pulling back. However, we've seen refiners in China and India still pursuing uh, the Iranian energy story. Uh, India, in fact, is still considering investment in an, in an Iranian gas field. Um, both China and India are looking to use the national Iranian tanker companies' uh, uh, vessels to transport Iranian crude, which is being offered um, free of shipping charge and with extended credit period. So we have both sides of, you know, we have two extremes in the in in terms of supply from Iran at the moment. So we see. So we, there, there, certain people try to go the, the the direct route with the U.S. saying, you know, give us a waiver to keep buying Iranian oil. They haven't managed to achieve that yet. But then there there are other groups that are just not even bothering and saying we're going to keep buying Iranian oil. But in in either case, is it the uncertainty over how much Iranian oil will be in the market that's driving the price up at the moment? The uncertainty, but also, um, you know. Uh, refiners cutting back. We've seen forty percent. Uh, so they actually have been cutting back. They have been Iranian cutting oil. back. Cosmo Oil, which is a Japanese oil company, for instance, has completely stopped Iranian imports. And other refiners will load their final shipments in September. And when it comes to South Korea, it's down forty percent. Uh, analysts are saying around one point two. That's the average that's being talked from six hundred thousand barrels to one point two million barrels per day could be taken off the market. Uh, some analysts like energy aspects are willing to go even further. That's 1.7. So Iran's current exports are 2.5. So that's nearly half of their output being pulled out of the market. Now, you mentioned earlier there was a forecast of oil could go to $95. Yeah. There's an implication on global growth mm-hmm. at that point. And earlier we were talking, Chris and I were talking about uh, how emerging markets are being impacted at the moment and higher oil prices and strong dollar are not good for emerging market growth. So in general, that's you know, and, and a lot of the customers for Gulf oil, UAU oil, are in Southeast Asia, Asia fast-growing economies. So that that's not necessarily, you know, a bullish factor at the moment. No. But um, we've seen OPEC act before to stabilize prices. Mm-hmm. Is there any sense from the analysts that Saudi Arabia, the only real swing producer in OPEC, could act to to give more supply, but also? There's always that on the horizon that once oil reaches a certain price, that more U.S. shale is produced to mop up excess demand as well. So, I mean, is there any sense that we may not actually ever reach that 95, even if we head towards that direction? 
We've seen Saudi supply coming into the market. There's been an increase of 350,000 barrels per day since the beginning of uh, the year. We've also seen phasing in of more supply, both uh, because of OPEC's uh, decision to uh, reduce oil inventory and bring more oil to the market, as well as you know behind-the-scenes pressure from the U.S. to bring in more supply. Um, having said that, oil ministers in the Gulf are very concerned about uh, slow Chinese demand. So that's, that's also a concern for them. Uh, so even if the price of oil... Uh, is on the rise. They, you know, it's it's likely there there won't be uh, buyers for the for the for the oil in the market. It's a chicken and egg situation, yeah. isn't it? Because if the as the price goes up, yeah. uh, they potentially make more money, but at the same time, it could put off buyers. It could slow activity, um, and as it, as oil gets more expensive, and then they will be selling less oil, even if it is initially at a higher price. So it's it's a it's a tricky balancing act, um, which I have to say that. OPEC hasn't always got right. They've done well the last two years, as you mm-hmm. quite rightly said. Initially, mopping up uh, the excess inven- yeah. inventories by reining in production, and then later um, this year, uh, actually putting more supply on the market to help uh, stop oil prices from spiking. Um, will they do the same? I mean, what's Saudi's position at the moment? So Saudi Arabia wants oil between uh, 70 and 80 uh, per barrel. Now, whether they'll they'll be able to keep it within that range or whether it's likely to spike, I think it's most likely that oil will get out of that range. But that's the desirable band that that we're hearing from the market. So we're just within that band at the moment. So yeah. the expectation is that it'll th- breach. That it'll breach, and when yeah. it does, then there'll be pressure on the Saudis sure. to do something. I assume yeah. might see some more tweeting from the White House. I think I think that will lead to Saudi reaction. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of murmur from OPEC, so we'll have to wait and see when they gather next um, on what the decision will be. Another uh, factor to watch out for is China. Now, if the oil prices are too high, they have a route from Iran. They have a new exchange, the Yuan exchange, um, which was announced in March. So we'll see how that picks up. So once the sanctions are in effect... We'll have to wait and see how Iran uses this resource to trade its oil and also how China is able to get discounted you know, oil supplies and oil cargoes from Iran. So that could have an effect on the market. It's not something that a lot of people are paying attention to at the moment, but it could be very significant going forward. And there are broader geopolitical risks in the region sure. as well. There's conflict in Libya at the yeah. moment, which is... Not great for for supply as well. And in general, the midterms, elections in the US causing a bit of political uncertainty. Um, We're in a fear moment, I think, for investors around the world. And so as we sort of hold our breath, as we we wrap up 2018, um, those could all affect demand and and ultimately, you know, the buying of, of crude, essentially. I think the oil markets are in a better position than last year. Uh, you know, Brent futures are in backwardation, which is the term, it's a fancy term for uh, futures trading at a premium. So the markets are anticipating tightening demand, which is different to how it was. Even until July, the markets were in contango, which is where... I love you know, that word, contango. <laughs> Sounds so dramatic. <laughs> I think OPEC is used, it's, it's fairly a sober organization, but they've been used to a bit of drama over the last two years. That's I think, true. I think we've come to the end of that. So it's 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 not really stable, but it's more of back to normal. If oil hits ninety five, it's back to two thousand fourteen when we when we last yes. saw um, yeah. ninety five barrel. Uh, so 
it's sort of related but unrelated topic. Um, recently, Saudi Aramco said they were going to delay, postpone yeah. their IPO, very highly anticipated IPO, could be worth true $2 trillion. Um, it's Saudi state oil producer, of course. Uh, but you, you would think that um, amid higher oil prices, now's the time to move forward with with an IPO. But also, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, with emerging markets where they are, emerging markets investors a little bit spooked, perhaps you don't want to, um, you know, put that out there. So, you know, what's what's been driving their decision in terms of, of holding back the IPO? Uh, a few factors. Oil prices um, have reached the desired level, uh, which OPEC and producers outside of the grouping led by Russia were working towards. So there's less of an urgency to raise money. Um, but also we've seen uh, a rethinking of the whole strategy. Uh, the rumor in the market is Aramco went in and tried to seek the sort of valuation they were looking for. I think it was about $100 billion for the 5% possible um, sale of uh, Aramco. But there was a fear that a state oil company may not necessarily get that kind of evaluation. It's been seen before in the markets. Uh, an international oil company, on the other hand, could command a premium, but state oil companies have ne- have always um, you know, been valued at a discount. This is examples in Russia and China. Exactly. So that, that was the fear. And an easier route for them was to perhaps uh, look at other avenues to, to bring in that sort of the, you know, the growth and efficiency that Aramco needs, uh, which mirrors the sort of regional trend towards yeah. downstream. Which we've discussed yeah. many times, yeah. um, you know, in terms of that idea of, of having a more vertical approach. So, the, you know, the, the Saudi Aramco is buying a stake in Sabic, yeah. Saudi-owned um, uh, chemicals producer. Uh, and that's part of the whole downstream shift that we we're talking about. So even though the bigger picture of oil markets could be up and down, dramatic, not dramatic, it shouldn't matter because the you know the Gulf producers have more skin in the game, mm-hmm. um, where products retain their margins and aren't as influenced by crude prices. So you know how that and that move has come recently, right, to buy a stake in Sabic. Has, has that been a big factor probably in in the decision behind not rushing to make this IPO happen? Amin Nasser, the CEO of Aramco, so that's one of the one of the main factors to do to delay the IPO. They've actually said they would consider the IPO at an optimal time. So, you know, it leaves it open. It's it's not been. They haven't said they're pulling out. Uh, we don't know if, if the IPO will come in a different form. Uh, we don't know when it'll take place. But Sabic is interesting. It's the largest listed company in the Middle East. It's it's a huge company. It's a big, you know, revenue earner for. Aramco, sorry, for Saudi Arabia. Um, and, you know, Aramco happens to be the feedstock supplier for for Sabic and, and, yeah. and its various... There's a lot of synergies there. Exactly. So it, it makes sense to capitalize on that. And there's always a door in since Sabic is listed on the Tadawal. It's true. I mean, it does it does create a world of possibilities, yeah. um, and and that's not something that, that you know a Sabic Saudi Ramco deal was not something that was being considered two years ago, three years ago no. when we first heard about a possible Ramco IPO. So the Saudi vision is evolving, um, and and I always felt that the Ramco IPO was a headline grabber, something to tantalize investors and and uh, bankers as much as anything else, and 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 very much a, a statement of intent which was very important at the time to say, this is what we're thinking about. You know, we, we will go along with the levels of transparency and openness that would be required from a partial flotation of our state oil company. Um, and, and so that always was that was quite moving for a lot of people to, to understand that that was the thinking 
thinking now in Riyadh, which wasn't always the case. So th- so there's been a huge um, consequence uh, on the positive side of even just announcing a possible IPO. And like you said, if they don't get the valuation they require, if, if the fundraising exercise isn't successful, then perhaps that takes away some of the benefits that even mooting the idea have brought. I think, I think the Saudi reform program and the Aramco IPO were mistakenly tied together. They're two different things. They're part of the same strategy, but for the Saudi reform program to succeed, it didn't necessarily have to have an Aramco IPO, uh, which is what a lot of analysts uh, have been saying. So it doesn't take away from the reforms that are ongoing. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia will be part of MSCI index. They've opened doors for foreign investors to invest in the stock market. There's a program for to encourage great, greater privatization in the sector. We've, we're seeing more foreign players in the utilities space. For instance, Saudi Arabia has a very solid renewables program that they're considering at the moment. So there's a lot of change. And this is all part of Vision 20, uh, 2030. But it doesn't necessarily mean that for this to succeed, there has to be an IPO. I think this is something that people are trying to come, in, come to terms with. That was a jam-packed episode of the Business Extra podcast. Uh, we were just talking oil markets and the Saudi Ramco IPO with Jennifer Niana, our energy correspondent. And earlier, of course, Chris Nelson was with me. And we we're talking about the potential excitement around uh, a bank merger in Abu Dhabi once again. And also, what's going to happen with Turkey? Please do join us again next week, where we'll bring in the big headlines and the big stories as always. <laughs>